I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, just a few chapters from where we've been parked for the last few weeks. It's been exciting to open the book of Ephesians together as a church and to see the foundational doctrines laid out for us in that book. And this week I had the opportunity to fill the pulpit and considering for some time what I would like to go through and was really motivated to take the church through a study that we have been going through for almost for the last year we've been studying Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 3. That seems like it would be incredibly slow so don't be afraid of this sermon it is the content of a year of study. I hope that it will be a blessing to you. I trust that it will. It certainly has been a blessing, a blessing to study this content with our youth, to dwell on this, the Word, to get deep into the marrow of the doctrine, and to apply it to our hearts. And so I hope that you will be encouraged this morning as we now turn and read this passage together. And for this morning, I want to read the entire context. So we'll be reading chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, because it's in the Greek once one, con, uh, one idea. And there we see in verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, and one Spirit, just as you were also called in one hope for your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Our topic this morning is directly derived from this text. If you had to guess, not just by simply looking at your bulletin to see the title, but just by hearing the cohesive message of this passage, you would not be wrong to venture it and say it's about unity. And what we know from studying the Scripture is that unity, oneness, is a marker not only of who God is in His nature, but what we are called to be as the church. And yet we all know and are aware that that is an unfamiliar condition. We are perhaps far too familiar with divisions in church. I have a friend who has started an entire series of sermons just called Church Hurt, just to kind of work through the many ways that people have been hurt in church. And it's not unusual, unfortunately, for many of us to say we have been hurt in church and perhaps been the source of hurt. Well, as we read through this passage, we recognize that there is not only a call that is focused on the idea and the concept of unity, but there's also a command that we would be unified. Now, we've been studying just the first few passages or first few verses of uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And one of the things you will notice as we continue the beginning of Ephesians, In fact, one minister I sat under, I sat in his ministry for two years listening to him preach through the book of Ephesians. 
And every week, it seemed as though, just the facts, man. Just the facts. And then one week, he got to chapter 4, and it was so rich and filled with convicting application. I went to him afterwards, and I said, what changed? Why did you change your methodology? Before, all you did was preach doctrine, and now you're preaching application. What, what happened? It, it was amazing. It was illuminating. It was convicting. What happened? He told me simply, I can't preach what's not there. See, the first three chapters of Ephesians is all about doctrine. The last three chapters are all about practice. And so when I teach the Scripture, I'm going to teach what it tells me to teach you. And so if it's focused on doctrine, I'm going to teach you doctrine. And when it turns to application, it's going to be application. And this is what's so amazing about the logic of the letters of, of Paul. If you look through his letters, you'll see that this is a normal expositional pattern that he follows. If you read through the book of Ephesians, the first eight chapters are all doctrine. Verses or chapters 9 through 11, question, well, what about Israel? Because really, what about Israel is answering is it true? The claims that Paul has made in the first eight chapters, are they true? Can we really trust God? Is the gospel sufficient? Will he abandon me? And the answer is, of course not, because look at what he's doing with Israel. For the, the remainder, 12 to 16, is all application. It's all how do we live together in the church. And you look at another book, Colossians. The first two chapters, it's, it's doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. And then the last two chapters is instruction. So what we find, and this is what we must understand, is that we cannot skip doctrine. We need to know doctrine in order to have right practice. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. And if we skip it, if we skip doctrine because we say it's too difficult, I don't understand it, it's confusing, we do ourselves a great disservice. Why? Because we will become moralistic. We will believe our convictions and what we think the Scripture means is more important than what the Scripture teaches, and that will lead to division. Or the other side of this, the coin is we will become carnal Christians. We will say, well, I believed the Lord Jesus Christ. I made that confession. I wrote it in my Bible. Here's the date, and I don't need to worry about it anymore. I'm just going to walk in my own practice. I'm going to do what I feel like. I'm going to take the passages of Scripture that I read. I'm going to apply it to my heart, but I'm not going to really search out its context and let it have its full work in me. And so what we have seen, and we can see it's rampant throughout our culture, is that we see miniature Christians, minuscule Christians, Christians who are shaken to the core by every different doctrine that comes through the church. And the reason being is because they have not stood on the foundation. They have not dealt with the foundational truths of what it means to be a Christian so that they would know how to be a Christian. They have not worked deeply through doctrinal truths so that when they hear error, they can smell it. A good friend of mine told me, Jonathan, you know you're doing a good job discipling your kids if you're in the service and the pastor says something amiss and they all turn their head and look at you. Fathers, if you aren't discipling your children, the world will disciple them. And if you're not discipling your children, bad teaching will get into their minds. And trust me, my wife and I, we are spending time to disciple our children. We even homeschool our kids. And we are still amazed at how much the world creeps into our lives. It's incredible. 
We cannot be static. We have to be active. So we need to know doctrine, and that will lead to our practice. And so what we see in the book of Ephesians, as we've been studying, is that it begins with these great foundational truths. And as we've been learning in the first section, Ephesians 1, 3-14, there's this key idea. What is it God is trying to do, or that Paul is trying to explain to the Ephesians? What is it that he wants them to understand? Well, look back at chapter 1 with me, because I don't want to break the rules I'm laying down for you by saying, well, let's just skip to chapter 4. I want to lay the context for chapter 4 by looking very quickly at the first three chapters. The reason being, because everything is connected by the word, therefore, in the first verse of chapter 4. It's the first word that happens in the Greek, and that conjunction is identifying, Paul is identifying with everything I said before is going to lead to everything I'm going to say after. And so for the sake of fidelity to the Scripture, we need to spend a little bit of time just getting the, the lay of the land. So consider this more or less an abbreviated 30,000 flyover, 30,000 foot flyover of what we've studied and what we will be studying until we as a church get to Ephesians 4. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, there's certainly more here than I could say in just a few moments, but I want to just read verse 18. Excuse me. That's the wrong verse. 3 to 14. Here Paul prays that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. This is verse 18. He prays that the eyes of his hearers hearts would be enlightened, that is, that they would be opened, so that they would know what the hope of his calling is, that they would know what the riches of the glory of his inheritance is in the saints. This is a prayer that Paul prays after going through great detail to explain how God has called us in a Trinitarian way, how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been actively involved in calling us from before the foundation of the world and doing all of this to the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory is the refrain that is repeated again and again in that section. And at the end of this, Paul recognizes that this is a great doctrinal truth, and he doesn't simply leave the people where they are with this truth. He recognizes that they need to have the eyes of their heart enlightened. They need to be prayed for to understand. And so he prays for them in verse 18. And isn't it wonderful that Paul takes the time to pray? He doesn't simply say, this is the truth. Don't you get it? He recognizes that this is a spiritual thing he's unfolding for them. And so they need to be prayed for. And then, in Ephesians 2, he begins to reveal to the Ephesians how the salvation that they have earned or have received is unmerited. It means that they didn't do anything to deserve it. And it's unilateral. It means God gave it to them wholly. It was His idea. A very familiar passage of Scripture that you may even have on your refrigerator we find in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we see that the Gospel is something that we are given. Just as He said in the first uh, verses 3 to 14, it is for the called. It is for those whom he called from before the foundation of the world, and those who have received it did nothing to deserve it. They were given it freely. They were dead, and God called them. And so, continues on 
in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, to explain the mystery. And we know that we're studying through the book of Ephesians, and our title for the series is The Mystery Revealed. Well, this is the mystery that's revealed. It's how God has joined Jew and Gentile and has created something that had not been expected, the church. And so the mystery, the church, is the fulfillment of God's promises to the patriarchs. It's the way that God has made all the descendants of the earth blessed through Abram. Abraham was the first faithful man, and he was promised that through him all the nations would be blessed. And that is happening now, currently, today, through the church. And there was many promises given through the prophets. And the scripture says that the prophets, they said these things, but they didn't understand what they meant at times, and they longed to look into them to understand what they were saying. They didn't know what they were speaking of was the church. And so Paul, in Ephesians 2, 11 to 13, explains that that's what's happened. This is how God is uniting the world in Christ through the church by the power of the gospel. And again, he has to pray. And so in chapter 3, verses 14 and 19, he prays this wonderful prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit and the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Therefore, that's where we are. See, this, this mystery that has been unfolded to us, the way in which God has saved us from before the beginning of time, the way that God has specifically in time brought us to himself and the purposes for this. This is a wonderful thing we must remember. Your salvation, my salvation, it's not my salvation. Your salvation. Jesus did not merely die for you. He is establishing his bride. That is his concern. And so, after Paul has unfurled before our eyes the glories of the mystery of the church, the ways and the purposes of God in bringing us to himself, and that it's eternal, it's before Adam and Eve, it's even before God said, let there be light, he looks through all of these truths, and now here's the implication, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner of the calling with which you have been called. He's saying, look back at everything you have been given. Now that you properly understand these true riches of who you are in Christ, now that you know what your inheritance is, now that you know what the purpose of the church is, you will understand how to walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord. And what is it that this calling demands? We'll look at verse 3. Be diligent. The ESV translate this as endeavor. Endeavor. Be diligent. Strive with all that you have to what? Preserve the unity of 
spirit and the bond of peace. Notice the spirit with a capital S because it's not talking about your spirit. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. What is the will of God in Christ Jesus? To see a unified church. And what is Paul's charge to this church? This is a church that is composed of people who are fractious and divided and at one another's throats frequently. How do I know that? Well, because I've been in church for more than a couple days. And this is true in any church you go to. There's sweetness and there's times of refreshing, but there's also times of sorrow, hardship, and division. But think about this. This first century church in Ephesus was composed primarily of Gentiles, and there were Jews in it. And we know that the ministry that Paul had was dealing constantly with divisions, with Judaizers coming behind him and questioning the authenticity of his authority, questioning his ministry, saying that they were greater apostles than he was. There was divisions among even the apostles. You remember that uh, Paul had to go see Peter and rebuke him face to face because Peter had begun to secretly eat with the Gentiles, but in public associate with the Judaizers and eat as a Jew would. And so he was walking as a hypocrite. The man who had been taught by the Lord Jesus Christ that all food had been made clean. First, in the life that he lived, Jesus said that whatever you eat goes out and is expelled. It is not what comes out of a man's bowels that makes him impure. impure. It's what comes out of the overflow of his heart when he speaks that makes him impure. So while he walked with the Lord Jesus Christ, he recognized that the Lord had declared all things clean. But you remember that in the book of Acts, when he was at the top of the roof at Cornelius' house, three times it was unfurled before him, stand, kill, eat. Lord, never I. I've never let anything impure enter my mouth. And the Lord made it clear that all things had been made clean. And that was when there was someone there, a Gentile, ready to receive not only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but even the Holy Spirit. And when Peter went and ministered to that man, he saw the Holy Spirit descend upon them, and they spoke in tongues. He said, if the Spirit of God will not deny them entry, how can we deny entry? And yet he'd forgotten this. And so Paul, his entire ministry has been consumed with this idea of unity, upholding the Lord Jesus Christ's will and desire and final prayer for the church, upholding the spirit of Christ's will for the church. And now he is turning to a church that is largely receiving doctrine, the church at Ephesus, a church that he has ministered to as their pastor. But now he's leaving them with this strong reminder. Look back at All the Lord has laid down as a foundation for you to understand why He has called you, how He has called you, that it's an undeserving call, and that the purpose of this call is for a united, beautiful church that is a declaration of God's glory. All of these things in mind, now you must endeavor. You must strive with everything you have. See, everything before we read about was something that God has done to you. It's the first that Paul is really pointing his finger and saying, you've been empowered, you've been endued with a call. This is your call. Strive for unity. And we can look at this passage, verses 1-3, to and see it's almost like an Oreo. You know, sometimes we talk about these Pauline sandwiches. And what it is, is that there's two sides to the same idea, and in between is that sweet nugget. Well, what's the sweet nugget? Well, it's verse 2. But let me reiterate what the first and the second part of the cookie is. 
They're both the same idea. You need to do something. Well, here's the first part. Paul implores them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. This idea of a worthy calling, worthy is, is the idea of a scale. You guys have seen those, those, you know, those old-time scales where you had, to, you had to put sand in it to make sure that it was an equal measure, and that sand had been measured out so they knew that it, it would always weigh what it weighed and then you'd put something else on the other side of the scale to get equality. You'd know, okay, I put this much weight in, so I have to put this much in sil- silver, and now I know it's, it's an equal measure when the scales were in the balance. That's what worthy here means. It's to bring things into balance. So Paul is commanding that the Ephesians walk in a worthy manner. This idea, walk, well, it's the conduct and the of their lives. And notice the imperative. He implores them, but he does not merely implore them to do this upon his strength. What does he call as the sign of his authority that would give him not only the right, but the authority to tell them that they need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which they have been called? He looks and tells them, consider my chains. See, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. He was literally in chains as he wrote this letter. I therefore prisoner of the Lord. We know that Paul in other times talks about himself as being the bondservant, a slave of Christ, but here he is literally in chains as the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, looking at the Ephesians, saying, you see my ministry? You see how I've laid it all down? How I've laid myself out? And now I am imprisoned, not as the Roman. I am the prisoner of the Lord. My ministry of seeing the Gospel go forth throughout all the world, my ministry of seeing both Jew and Gentile united in one church is the marker of authority and my legitimacy to tell you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called is my bondage for this same calling that I walk in. And so what is he telling them? As much as you've heard and received, and seeing in me, do likewise. It's a Philippians 4.9. He's calling them as his disciples to follow his method, to imitate him, to become like him, prisoners of the Lord. Now this passage is truly a challenge to us. We remember that in Ephesians 2.2, Paul says that you formerly walked in the course of this world according to the power of the prince of the air. This is the opposite. See, previously we walked like this world, but now we have this ongoing battle. And what Paul is recognizing is this battle is real. But there is a volitional change that has happened if you're in Christ. Previously you walked according to the power of the principalities of this world, this age, the demonic realm. And you had no idea that you were in lockstep with a demonic force. See, now something has changed. If you have been filled with the Holy Spirit because the Lord Jesus Christ who has called you has brought you illumination and you have called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thus been saved and you have been filled with His Holy Spirit, you have now a volitional will to walk differently. But notice, He has to implore them. He has to command them. He has to encourage them, exhort them, beg them. You need to walk differently. See, what's easy is for us to walk as we formerly did. What's easy is for us to do nothing. 
when it comes to walking in the ways of the Lord. The simplest thing for us is to simply get by in life. We will quickly fall back lockstep in with the world. We may still be Christians, but we will find the nearness, the nearness of Christ to be far from us. We will find that the preciousness of the Word seems to be stagnant, stale, or untasteful, tasty to our palates. And this is normal, unfortunately. That's because we are sinful. It's because we are carnal. It's because we need to remember the call to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called to uphold the bond of peace and pleasing the Spirit of Christ. And the only way we can do this is by volitionally choosing to do it. That's the difference. We know this great mystery. We know this great mystery. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is the Lord Jesus Christ who both works in you to will and to do. The Lord is working in us, but we must will. There's a synergistic? No, it's not synergistic. It is so, solely the Lord Jesus Christ working in us and then us choosing to obey it. And when we do choose to obey this will of the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens? He empowers us to obey. He empowers us to understand His Word. Just as Paul, throughout this letter, has had to stop. Okay, guys, I've given you a little too much truth. I need to pray for the eyes of your heart to be enlightened. He prays for them. This is a spiritually understood thing. There is nothing in our flesh that is capable of understanding spiritual truth and applying it. Again, I warn you, if you come to Ephesians 4 and you merely try to walk out all the mandates that he gives you, you will do one of two things. You will become discouraged because it's impossible and give up. Or you will become self-righteous and conceited and a simple moralist like any of the Pharisees in the day of Christ who were opposed by him because they were righteous in their own eyes. So that's the two sides of this Pauline sandwich. Do. Do. But then there's the how in verse 2. And that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. So look with me at verse 2. He calls the believers who have been called by the Lord Jesus Christ to walk in humility and gentleness with patience one another in love. Now in your bulletin you have an outline. And what we see in the outline is that just what's in this passage. Paul exhorts the believers at Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of the great call with which they have been called to be diligent in the pursuit of unity. And this is only possible, first, if you think of yourself less. And secondly, if you regard others more highly than yourself. And finally, if you allow and you remember, love is the central motivator for all of this. So let's look at this together. The first thing we should notice when we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is that we are being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. We're being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And what does that mean? It means we are not being self-willed. See, the mature Christian is just the opposite. The mature Christian will think of himself less, but we know this is not natural because, again, we know that we previously walked in accordance with this world. And so in order to walk in a righteous manner means that we volitionally must choose to think differently. We must bathe our minds. We must renew our minds with truth. We must meditate on Scripture. We must ask ourselves, am I truly living out what the Scripture commands? 
Now what we see is that humility and gentleness, these two words are closely related. There's the conjunction and between them. They're not the same word, however. Sometimes we get confused and we think humility and gentleness or humility and meekness, which is the other way that gentleness is translated in our scriptures, we think sometimes they're the same thing. And they're very closely related. In fact, they're intrinsically connected. However, they're very different. Now, you know what's interesting about this word humility this, the, the, in, in, the, in the Greek? You know what's interesting about it? It does not occur prior to it being written in the New Testament. The word humility means to abase oneself, to make oneself low. If you were to give a word picture, in fact, this is what we did last night with the kids, I want you to consider there's a, mu there's a big mud pit out in the yard. We were at the Davises, and there was mud pits because it had rained. And imagine there was a lady coming by, and she needed to, to get by and did not want to get her, her feet dirty. A gentleman might take his jacket off and lay it in the ground, but a humble man might even lay himself on the ground so that that woman would be able to walk over him and not step in the mud. That's the idea of humility, self-abasement, to make oneself low in order to cause another to be lifted up. Well, this idea was not only foreign to the first century A.D. Uh, Greek language, but once it actually was in use among the Christians, those who were con contemporaries mocked the Christians for the thought of this. It was unmanly. It was ignorant, foolish to make oneself low. The, the, the refrain of the philosopher of that age was to make yourself great, not to make yourself low, not to make someone else more important than yourself. And so we can see that's very true today. Humility is foreign to us still. And you know what else is interesting? Although humility is described throughout the scripture, uh, in the New Testament and at times in the Old Testament, do you know what is closely associated with the word humility? Almost every time we see it in the scripture? Pride. And I, I think the reason is, is because of how darkened our hearts are. The thing that we really understand well is pride. I mean, we, we get that. We, we can see it in each other. At times we can't see it in ourselves, but we understand pride. But humility, man, that's different. And so the scripture will frequently put the word humility next to the word pride in order to give a counterpoint to help us as uh, just darkened people to understand what it really looks like. Because the antonym to humility is pride. And so if you want to understand what it means to be humble, think about your worst excesses of pride and then just do the opposite. And so we see in Matthew 23, 12, just a few examples of the scripture of this. Jesus tells his disciples, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So if you want to be made high, you've got to make yourself low. Again, this is one of those wonders of scripture. It's, it doesn't make sense, but who's going to inherit the kingdom of God? The, the last, not the, not the first. James chapter 4, verse 6 and 10. There James says in uh, verse 6, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then in verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. We see, again, pride has to be counterposed uh, with humility in order for us to get the picture of what they look like. And then perhaps the greatest example in the scripture that's the most clear for us is the Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2, passage of Scripture I encourage you to turn to, we see 
the example of Jesus and the way he laid down his life willingly. Let's turn there together. Now, Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4 is a passage of Scripture that I recommend you, you memorize. It's a passage of Scripture we frequently uh, repeat with our children to help them and to guide them. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This, this, of course, is the best definition of how we could be humble. But what is it that we're, we're having to do? We're having to lay something down. What is it? We need to lay down our own personal interests and do what instead? Consider others more highly than ourselves. That's difficult to do. But here's our example. Isn't this wonderful? If you ever have an imperative in the scripture, which is essentially a command, look out for the indicative, the reason why. And the indicative here is the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter, or excuse me, verse 5. Here Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves. Which attitude? The attitude of humility. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you understand how significant that passage is? Jesus abased himself as God, very God, making himself not only a man, but subjecting himself willingly to the cross, dying so that, not just that he would be raised, not just so that he would receive a crown, which he did, but so that every name is God would receive the glory. That is the power. So Paul is saying, consider the trajectory like a boomerang. You throw it and it comes back to you. If you're willing to abase yourself to the utmost, God will lift you up to the utmost. Just as he did with Jesus Christ. You know, pride, we could say, is like a cataract. It blinds you. And what's interesting about a cataract is you can still see, but your scope of vision is limited. You lose your peripheral vision. You can still see, but it's like tunnel vision. And so a person who's proud, you know what he's really good at? Seeing pride in other people. You know what he's really bad at? Seeing his own pride. And I would tell you, and this is, I think, one of the graces that God gives us, if you have any particular person that just really irritates you, grates you, you see anything in others that just seems to consistently rub you the wrong way, not just in a particular person, but just in people in general, and you, you see that in them, I would encourage you to ask the Lord if you're seeing it because you're doing the same thing. 
Because so often, the things that we very quickly pick out in other people is what we're walking in. That's why Jesus said we need to get the log out of our own eye before we get the speck out of our brother's eye. It's why we need to be careful when we judge that we do not judge with an unrighteous standard because we will be judged with that same standard by the Lord. And think about how harsh we are in our judgments. I don't think any of us want to be judged by the standard with which we judge others. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't judge. Of course not. But it means we need to be very cautious and careful in examining ourselves. As image bearers, as men and women and little boys and little girls who have been called by the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called to walk bearing the image of the Lord Jesus Christ in our relationships with one another. God in his trinity is perfectly connected. There is no division. And that is the way we are to strive for interaction with one another. And so if we don't put to death pride, if we don't move from pride to humility, we are going to have division in the church. We will not have unity. And so you see that the first step in being able to have unity in the church is not merely praying for it. It's doing heart work. And so the first thing we need to do is examine ourselves and ask the Lord to reveal to us secret sins. The prayer, again, I'd recommend to you is Psalm 139, 23 and 24. God, search me, know me, try me, reveal to me any hurtful way, and let me walk in the way everlasting. What is David praying there? He's praying, God, you know what? I sin so much, I'm so sinful that I can't even see all the sin that I commit. So please show me the ways that I'm sinning without knowing. And you know what's gracious is the Lord will do that. So the second thing we need to do in order to really work on our internal heart to be able to preserve unity in the body is to be humble. The second thing is we need to be gentle. And just like humility, gentleness is an uncommon commodity in the world. And I would say gentleness is something that we read about, but I don't think very many of us understand it. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23. And it's truly a rare jewel of character. A rare jewel. I wish that I had it. And to the extent that the scripture calls me to, but reading and studying through it this week, I was just pressed and convicted. See, the, the idea of gentleness or meekness literally means to not seek your own cause, but to seek another's cause. And I think the best way for us to understand it is to look through a couple examples of who meek men were in the Scripture and why the Scripture commended them and then specifically what meekness means for us as we apply it to our hearts. First example would be probably the most humble man who ever lived, according to the Scripture, Moses. You see, Moses was a man of authority. He was called to lead the people of Israel, and yet constantly his authority was challenged. His own brother and sister questioned his authority. We remember that the sons of Korah rose and stood against him, opposed him, and God did something new. He allowed the ground to open up and to swallow the whole assembly whole to show all of Israel that Moses was indeed the servant of the Lord. But in all of these things, Moses was not angry for his own authority. He wasn't saying, you need to listen to me. You need to follow me. I am the servant of the Lord. Look at how I have suffered. He never does that. In fact, when the Lord is going to strike down the camp of Israel, and more than one time this happens, what do we see Moses doing? Throwing himself to the ground and interceding on their behalf. Reminds me of Jeremiah 
in the book of Lamentations, he lays out an incredible uh, lengthy prayer, poetic acrostic, one chapter after another, thoughtfully laid out. And what, he, what is he doing in that, in that scripture? Although he is innocent of the guilt of the sin of Israel, he is standing in their place because they can't pray because they don't know how to pray. They won't pray because they aren't faithful to the Lord. And so he says, Lord, we have sinned against you. And he intercedes on behalf of the nation that God would restore Israel back to the land in the midst of terror. And so whenever Moses saw his authority questioned, he never asserted his own right, but looked to the Lord and prayed for the people. In the same way, Paul had authority. And when he was speaking to the Corinthians, in chapter 14, verse 21, he asked them, sorry, 1 Corinthians 14, 21, he asked them, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? And again, in 2 Corinthians Chapter 13, verse 10, he says to them, For this reason I write these things while absent, so that when present I do not need to use severity in accordance with the authority with which the Lord has given me for building up and tearing down. What is he saying? I have the authority as the Lord's servant to whip you, to tear you down, to be ungracious to you in order to build you back up to be right before the Lord. Because this church, the Corinthian church, was so divided. They were so divided that he dedicated all of the first letter to trying to restore unity. And in the second letter, when he spends the majority of his time commending them for listening to him, the last half he's brokenhearted and having to remind them again to examine themselves and to see if they were truly walking in the Lord. And he tells them these words, I can come to you and tear you down, but I write now to warn you so that your hearts will be prepared because I don't want to have to do this. He was being meek and the use of his authority. And of course, we know the ultimate example is the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, 1 Peter 2.23 says that while being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus entrusted himself to the Lord. That's what it looks like to be gentle. Simply, the best evidence of or gentleness or meekness is this. The man who is angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Do you possess this characteristic? Because put simply, meekness or gentleness has more to do with righteous anger and entrusting yourself to the Lord to work in people and to bring about his cause has much more to do with that than it does with allowing evil to go on and there being nothing said. So what happens in our lives is very often we are quick to be angry, but how often is that anger for us, for ways that we're violated, for ways that people dishonor us? How often are we angry in that way? Now turn the, and look the other way. How often do you see the name of God blasphemed and you say nothing? How often do you see Christians walking in unrighteousness and you do nothing to pray for them? How often do you see your brother even in a sin that could lead him to great peril and you don't go to him and warn him? See, that's what gentleness looks like. The gentle person is a man who is dedicated to prayer, a woman who is willing to go to their friend and warn them 
with a way that they are not walking in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And most of all, that gentle person, that meek person is entrusting themselves to the Lord, knowing that he is the avenger. He will have his will done. And so they are people who are dedicated to prayer, people who are dedicated to upholding one another. And most importantly, they are people who are willing to rebuke one another when they see sin in the church. So this is the inward work we have to do. See, we, we have to be humble if we're going to be able to go to our brother and bring a rebuke. It, and it takes great tact and wisdom to be able to rebuke someone without you yourself becoming angry along the way. So many times where we see, we maybe start with righteous anger and we don't hold it correctly and we become angry for our own cause. We forget that we are defending the Lord's cause. And so it's no longer gentle. It's no longer corrective. It's no longer helpful. This inward heart work that we do now leads directly to this outward manifestation of body life that makes it possible for us not only to think of ourselves less, but to think more highly of others and to walk with them in a way that is patient and tolerant. So that's our second point. If we will think of ourselves less and regard more others as more highly than ourselves, then we will be able to walk in patience and tolerance. Our next two words. Scriptures are amazing, aren't they? You know, as I studied through these words this week, I didn't recognize that they... I didn't recognize that it would be impossible for me to walk in patience with someone if I didn't have humility. I didn't recognize it would be impossible for me to have tolerance if I didn't have gentleness. And what we could say is that there is a progressive building that is happening for the believer that Paul has laid these words out in the order that he has because he wants us to first part so that we can deal with one another. So we have to be humble before we can be gentle so that we can then be patient so that we can be tolerant in the body. Things are impossible if they're not connected with one another. We could say that we commit scriptural malfeasance if we try to go and correct someone we haven't humbled our hearts. So we need to be using the scripture, dealing correctly with ourselves so that we can deal with one another. And what's so key in our walk with one another, what is so needed is that we would be patient with one another. And the word is also translated as long-suffering. It's difficult to be long-suffering if you're proud. It's difficult to be patient if you're constantly angry. But Ephesians 1.4 reminds us, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. Ephesians 2.1, You are dead in your trespasses and sin. Romans 2.4, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You remember I said we need to be careful with the measure that we judge, that we not be judged by that same standard. What's the standard that God has judged us? In your bulletin, I have a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones that I didn't put in my sermon, but let me read it. If God were not long-suffering, not one of us would still be alive. Not one of us would be a Christian. Long-suffering is His attitude to us. So let it be our attitude toward one another. 
I admit this is not an attribute that's easily attainable. That's why Paul calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called to uphold the bond of peace that is the Spirit's will for the church, that it be unified. In order for the church to be strengthened, we need to look at one another with the same eye of patient, enduring love that God had with us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were mockers, haters, insolent, boastful, inventors of evil, without hope in this world, Christ died for the ungodly. For the believer, patience is that cautious endurance that does not abandon hope. That's so important. Patience does not abandon hope, but patiently waits. It's like the farmer who harvests. He goes and he plows the field. He lays the waits for the rain to bring the fruit of the heart of his work. That's what it looks like to be patient. We, as brothers and sisters in Christ, have a wonderful opportunity to pray for one another, to be patient with one another, to rightly appraise our own pride when we see it in others, to lovingly, graciously, gently go to one another and exhort one another when we see sin in one another's lives. And even at the same time, as we rebuke our brother, be willing to recognize that we're not perfect and we may also need to be rebuked by that friend. This is such a timely sermon as we prepare ourselves this morning for communion, isn't it? Patience means that we wait with endurance, entrusting ourselves to the Lord, that He will bring the results. That takes us to the next point, which is tolerance. If you want to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called, if you want to endeavor to uphold the bond of peace and preserve the unity of the Spirit, you must be tolerant. Now, we live in an age of tolerance. But I would say that we have pretty easily identified that the version of tolerance that our world is, is teaching us is no tolerance at all. It's a tolerant intolerance. If I were to guess how persecution might come to the church or has even started to happen in the church, I would say that in a land that has celebrated free speech and freedom from whatever they wants to be free from. We live in an age of plurality and tolerance that says that you can believe whatever you want, do whatever you want, but you can't tell me what I want to do. In an age with a postmodern ethos and we don't believe that there is an up or a down or a wrong or a right, we live in an age of intolerant to- tolerance. And so the persecution that will come to the church is because we hold to foundational truths. We say the scripture is true. And so for that reason, we are intolerant, therefore we cannot be tolerated. But that's the kind of tolerance that Paul's speaking of here. The tolerance that he is speaking of is so fundamental to the Christian walk that I would go as far as to say that this is the most significant of the four attributes we've looked at so far for the sake of unity. It's absence is the greatest 
hindrance to unity in the church. I would say that intolerance in the believer, immaturity in the believer, is the greatest divider of churches today and has been since the inception of the church. Put simply, tolerance is the ability to endure with others. And not just personalities, but specifically convictions. Specifically preference issues. Now, we can laugh about the ways in which we've seen churches split over the color of a carpet. I recall there being a church, two churches right across the street from one another. First Baptist, Second Baptist. Both buildings were identical in every way. They were on opposite corners of one another. And do you want to know the key distinction between those two churches? One had red carpet and one had blue carpet. And that's why they split. There was a church that had a split. The, 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 the anger and the vitriol that was, was motivating this split got so heated that in violation of 1 Corinthians 6, the two sides took their case to a secular court. The secular court, of course, dismissed the charges. And when they took their charges to the higher-ups of their, their church group, so they were in a, a group that had oversight by other churches, and they went and took their case to that court, that church court. The church court, after its investigation, recognized that both sides were at fault, but they realized in their investigation the result or the, the reason, the, pre, the, the, the thing that caused this split. You know what it was? An elder in a church got a piece of meat that was smaller than the child next to him as he walked through the food, uh, the lunch line. And he was so indignant that he began to stir up strife. And eventually that church split. And both of those churches lost the authority that they had to be representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. In their community, they were ridiculed and mocked, and they're being talked about this morning. Now I know, from my experience, I've been in churches that have had these sorts of things take place. Unfortunately, I am guilty. I am guilty. Perhaps not of splitting a church, but allowing divisions in my heart about matters of tertiary issues, preference issues, to cause me to become puffed up when I look at my friend. Why do you do this? Or why don't you do this? And so much of what happens in the church is really a matter of intolerance. And it's because we're not walking in humility. It's because we're not being gentle. We're not being willing to be patient with one another. And so we are intolerant with one another. Put simply, humility, or excuse me, intolerance, or the word tolerance, is this. When you judge things to be sinful that are not clearly delineated as such in the Scripture, you wrongly judge not only your brother who did the misjudged deed, but you also, this is important, you also judge and condemn the Bible for not condemning the deed. Now, do you see why it's so important that we understand Scripture? See, if we don't spend time bathing our minds, saturating our hearts in the, the truths of Scripture and allowing it to do its work, we will become just like the Pharisees. Do you remember 
Jesus was walking through the field with his disciples. One of them reached out and grabbed a piece of grain and rubbed it between his fingers and ate it. And the Pharisees rebuked Jesus for allowing his disciples to harvest grain on that day because it was the Sabbath. How many times did Jesus allow healing? He waited to do a healing until it was the Sabbath. Well, it's because they had made these tertiary issues higher than the biblical scripture mandated. And they were being opposed by Christ actively. These, these issues of intolerance were being opposed by him actively so that he could illuminate for them the wickedness and the depravity of their hearts. And you may recall, they had taken the very clear teaching of the scripture, which was that a son should care for his elderly parent and had violated by calling their offering Corban, which basically meant they would take all of that they had, all their money, they would take it and dedicate it to the temple, but they didn't give it to the temple. They held on to it, but they said, it is dedicated. And they used the money, but they couldn't give it to their elderly parents because it was Corban. It had been dedicated, and therefore, they could not help them. Do you see how, in the wickedness of their hearts, they were looking for ways to profit and just very clearly violate the law of God. So Jesus rejected that. He, re he rebuked them for that. Again, I, I tell you, it is easy. It is easy for us to see that and be pride. Say, that's so dumb. That's so silly. I would never do that, but not recognize we're guilty of the same thing. We really need to examine our hearts. We need to ask ourselves, have I something is sinful where the scripture has not? Oh, Romans 14, I recommend you go home and read the, all of it, but I want to read just a small portion of it because this helps us to understand a little bit more how we ought to think and operate in the church. Turn with me to Romans 14, uh, verse 19. Verse 19. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things are indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is the one who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because this is it. His eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. And so if you have a conviction, it's not specifically mandated by the Scripture, praise the Lord. Whatever is done without faith is sin, so walk in that conviction. But allow the Scripture to be the guide. There are things... That my pa in, in the past, I was convicted about that I'm no longer convicted about because I realized over time that that was an immature conviction. And then there are things over time that I wasn't convicted about that I am now convicted about because I was immature. And I recognized that those things indeed were sinful and I could not do them. What's so interesting in the church is that very often we will uphold those revelations, those convictions, those 
trophies of grace that God has given us in order for us to operate and navigate the Christian walk in a way that's faithful, we will take those trophies of grace and then we will look at others who don't have the same convictions and we will look down upon them. And that's what it is to lack tolerance. And so for that reason, if you do have convictions and you want to see those convictions formed in your brother, we must be patient to see Christ formed in them in that way. If you have convictions and, and you want to see your brother or your sister have the same convictions, but they're not sinful, or perhaps they are, you need to have gentleness because you need to be able to discern, is this actually a sin? You need to rightly appraise your own heart, and then for goodness sakes, if you recognize that this is a sin that leads to death, you need to go to them. And if you don't know what a sin is that leads to death, then keep praying and keep reading the Scripture, and the Lord will make it clear to you. And finally, if you're going to be tolerant with one another, you have to be humble. You have to recognize, you know, this may just be a thing we disagree about, and that's okay. Now, there are things in matters of doctrine where I have friends, very dear friends, and we disagree about those matters. We're brothers. We fellowship, but we don't congregate. So we're friends in Christ, right? But there's those doctrinal distinctions that are just enough off that we would say, we may not congregate together in a church situation, but we love one another. We'll break bread together. We love each other. But this is something in the church we really have to strive for. See, the church, since the, uh, you know, the split in the Reformation, has split and split and split and split. There, there are thousands of denominations. There's thousands of church splits. There's a church split happening right now as we speak. I personally have been in a church and watched a church split happen one Sunday. And I'll tell you, it was grievous to watch the split take place, but it was glorious because we were upholding scriptural truth and people who were upholding their convictions and were being intolerant were eventually leaving the church. But we stood fast with the scripture taught and it was glorious to behold. We need to be patient with one another. We need to strive for unity. Turn back to Ephesians If we are going to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called, if we are going to endeavor to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, the thing that we need that is imperative, the thing that we need that will enable us to be humble and gentle, patient and tolerant is love. Love for one another. Unfortunately, just as Tolerance has been corrupted in our world. The word love has been corrupted in many ways. The way our world understands love is it's something that's possessive. It's something that you get. It's a feeling. But the biblical understanding of love is very different than that. Biblical love seeks the highest good of the one who is loved. It is sacrificial. Love, biblical love, is truly humble because it lays yourself down for the sake of another. Biblical love is gentle because rather than seeing your your brother and being angry when he offends you you remain gentle with him true love is patient waiting for the Lord to work others and you're prayerful for them and true love is tolerant willingly laying down your preferences for the sake of your brother's conscience in order to build and instill in the church a unity 
that will lead to mutual encouragement and betterment for us all. Familiar definition of love we all know is 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in righteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The way to read through this passage is to take the word love or the pronoun that replaces the word love and put your name there and ask this question. Am I patient? Am I kind? Am I not jealous? Do I not brag? Am I not arrogant? To really assess yourself and pray through these things. Do I seek my own? Am I easily provoked when I'm suffering wrong? Do I reject unrighteousness but uphold righteousness? Do I love truth? Do I bear all things? Do I believe the best about others? Do I hope the best for them? Do I endure, truly endure with them? That's what love does. Sacrificial. It's what we need. It's the glue that holds all of these ingredients together that enable us to walk in unity. This is the kind of love that pleases God because it's the same kind of love that He has had for us. Jesus laid His life down for us. When? While we were yet sinners. Now therefore, let us encourage one another with these words. May we walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called, with all humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance with one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And when we strive to do this, because we recognize it's a work we must give ourselves to, when we strive to do this, when we dedicate ourselves to diligently preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we not only prove that Christ has been formed in us, but we also fulfill His prayer. John 17, May they be one, even as you, Father, in me, and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. When we walk in unity, we prove the gospel to be true. And the world is watching us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning to look through this passage of Scripture, which is just so convicting. If we rightly appraise ourselves, we would recognize that we fall short in so many ways to do these things. But we pray, Father, that you would remind us that we, if we're in Christ, we are, we are proving that Christ is real by the way that we walk, by the way that we strive, by the way that we willingly lay down our interest for the interest of others, by the way that we seek your cause, not our cause, by the way that we endure long 
to see Christ formed in others. And by the way that we lay down our interests, our preferences, our convictions for the sake of the conscience of another. It's not wrong to deny ourselves things for the sake of our brothers, that they be strengthened and be encouraged. So we pray. We pray, Lord, that you would enable us to strive in this way. It is not only commended to us that we do it, it's commanded that we do it. And we know that you are intrinsically concerned that we do this. Your glory is on the line and your worth is demonstrated when we prove that Christ is true by the way that we love one another. Lord, as we now turn to a time of reflection, as we return now to a a time of partaking of communion, we ask that you would help each one of us to take a moment and to rightly appraise ourselves. We know that it is easy to hear a sermon and let it go out in one ear and one out and right out the other. But we recognize the scripture has made it clear. If you're in Christ, you can change the way you're walking. If you're in Christ, you are enabled by the Spirit of Christ to preserve you will for the sake of the body of Christ. And so as a church now, as we collectively partake of communion, we pray, first of all, that each one of us would be appraising our hearts. If there's any in this mor- that's here this morning that is not in Christ, I pray, Father, that they would recognize that they're either carnal or moralistic, but either one of those is not an option. They need to be Christians. They need to be humble before your throne so that you would lift them up. And Lord, if there are any this morning who have been struggling, who have been weighed down by the worries of this world, I pray that you would help them to return to you this morning and be strengthened. And Lord, you know the state of our relationships. You know if there's someone this morning that's here in this room and we need to go to them. I pray that if there's anyone who's been offended by anyone in this room, that they'd be willing to lay their sacrifice at the altar before they partake of this communion and go to one another to repent or to be restored and reconciled. We recognize that this is something we should do either if we knowingly sinned against someone else or they have sinned against us. And Lord, we pray for wisdom. If that person's not in this room, but we want to uh, see reconciliation in that relationship. Father, the most important thing for us this morning is to make sure that we partake of the Lord's table in a righteous manner. And so we pray that your spirit would come and give us light, give us conviction, so that we would not dishonor you this morning, we pray. Amen.